Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, page 1123 in our Pew Bibles. Romans 9, we're going to read the verses 1 through 18. Well, to be completely honest, we could read Romans 9 through chapter 11. Because Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with the question of election, deal with some of the questions that are arisen because of it, and help us understand more fully what it means. These are the chapters that end with that lovely doxology in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been His counselor, has given Him a gift that He might repay. We're going to sing that as our doxology, but we'll read only the verses 1 through 18 of Romans 9 this afternoon. Hear the Word of God. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then to the Belgic Confession, and now Article 16. The Belgic Confession, which in our Forms and Prayers books, page 170, We'll read together, or read rather, I'll read, Article 16, a short little article, but one that caused no end of trouble in the history of our churches. So Article 16, we believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. He's merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. And he is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall, 
into which they plunged themselves. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, when it comes to the doctrine of election, there is much that can be said and should be said to prevent great misunderstanding in this teaching. For this is the article, for what it's worth, that got the Reformed churches in all of the world into uh, a, a great discussion and debate in the 17th century. For it was here that Jacob Arminius stumbled in his preaching and was called to give an account, or his followers called to give an account, of what it was that they thought concerning the doctrine of election. In his preaching, Arminius came to this article, and what he said did not sound right to those sitting in the pew, and the result was, of course, the canons of Dort. The result was a great event in the history of the Reformed churches, for all of the churches came together to discuss, debate, and determine the teaching of Scripture on this very point, all of which is to say that this is a short little article, Article 16 in the Belgic Confession, but all of the canons of Dort fit within it, so that there is much that could be said here and that should be said. Indeed, we ought to remind ourselves of how Article 14 in the first head of doctrine of the canons of Dort speaks for in speaking about how the doctrine of election should be taught, the authors of that confessional statement said, it should be taught with a spirit of discretion in a godly and holy manner at appropriate times and places and without inquisitive searching into the ways of the Most High. And this must be done for the glory of God's most holy name and for the lively comfort of His people. Which is to say that in discussing the matter of election, we're not to seek to win an argument. We're not to find a club with which we can beat fellow believers. But we are to see how God's glory shines in these things and how they are for our great confidence and comfort as those who trust in the living God. And this is the approach of the Belgian Confession. It's simple, it's clear and concise. But what is taught here seeks both to encourage the believer and to glorify the God of salvation. This doesn't mean that every question we have will be answered. And there will be those who may find this teaching offensive and odious and unfair and who will not see the error of their ways. But we do these things to demonstrate above all else that the teaching of election extols the majesty of our God and gives to all who trust Him a solid foundation for their eternity and for all of their lives. This teaching begins rather simply. For we are told that all men are born in sin and therefore are under the rightful judgment of God. Maybe you notice that in the way that the Belgic Confession begins this article. For the opening statement is simply this, we believe that God showed Himself to be as He is, merciful and just. That's really the opening statement of the Belgic Confession. That God is as He appears to be, a God who is merciful and a God who is just. But wanting to be clear on this, they include these words. That all Adam's descendants having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, 
Because this is true, says the author of the confession, because all men fell and in Adam, or because Adam fell and in Adam all fell. Therefore, all men are under the rightful judgment of God. Yet, in that fall into sin, God showed himself to be who he is, that is a God of mercy and a God of justice. We start then by acknowledging that we are not neutral in our relationship with God as we consider the teaching of election. There was, you might say, a time when we were able to choose between life and death, when we were not in a position so much of one or the other, but were at a crossroads where we were to walk in the way of life or in death, eat from this tree or from that tree. And we, of course, chose the wrong tree. We chose death. And as a result of that, God who warned us, said, saying that the day you eat of it will surely die, the result of that has been that both physically and spiritually we suffer under the judgment of God ever since. And we may not like that, or there are many in our world who do not like that, who do not think that's fair, who do not think that that is just at all. We may wish as so many in the world wish, that God had ordered life differently. They say to us things like, if God is all-powerful and all-good, then why couldn't He prevent man's falling? Why couldn't He prevent all of these things that happened, all of this misery, all of this grief and sorrow, all of these hospital beds, prison rooms, all of these wars and, and griefs that grip the hearts of men? All men are born rebelling against God, blind to the greatness of our God and hating Him. Surely if God were all good and all powerful, He would want to prevent this from happening. And so the world believes that our God is cruel or our perspective on God. We believe in a crass, cruel, unjust, unfair God. Forgetting, of course, that God did give to us the opportunity to choose and that we chose death. Forgetting that if God were to leave us in the condition we chose, no one could be saved. Any more than a blind man can see or a lame man can walk or a deaf man can hear, no sinner can have faith in Jesus Christ, can come to a saving relationship with God, can know the eternal power of God unless God first does something. That's what our world forgets. It places the question of God's dealings with us from the perspective of man in neutrality. It says God should give every man a free choice. Every man forever and always should be left to decide for themselves, forgetting that God did that and that we chose sin. For the Lord looks upon the world, even as we must look upon the world, to see that the hearts of all men are angry and rebellious and rejecting of Him. For when we see the truth of the world, when we see the truth of our fellow men, when we see the truth of our own hearts, then the singular most amazing thing you will ever hear or experience in this life is God's Word to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Because you understand that in that moment, man, in all of his 
power and strength allied himself against God, joining the serpent, rebelling against his creator, and committing himself and his children and grandchildren, all of us, to living in rejection of God's claim upon him. Now upon the earth stood an army of those who refused to accept God. And the only thing you can expect In a moment such as that, when an enemy comes and throws himself against the fortress of the one they hate, the only thing that you can expect is wrath, condemnation, cruel punishment, and just righteous anger. And yet, what do we get in that moment in Genesis 3? not even speaking to the fallen creatures that He was preparing to redeem, but speaking now to His enemy, to the serpent, who He would crush and destroy, God spoke a promise. The promise of a Savior, a Son, miraculously born, who will suffer to deliver these wicked people. Don't you see that in that moment where we expect and deserve the almighty fist of God's wrath to destroy us, the heavens to be rent open, and the mighty and majestic God to descend in all of His fury, we receive instead a God who seeks us out, who calls and says, where are you? And who says to the one who has led us into sin, I will destroy you that I might save these people. Can you not understand how then the characteristic and quality of God that ought to shine most clearly in our hearts and minds is not the judgment of God against sin, but is the tenderness of a father who picks up his children and carries us to the day of his son's death so that we might be saved. In fact, everything we ever need to know about the doctrine of salvation is found in that promise and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know, of course, that God's choice of saving, God's decision to save some, was made in eternity past, before He'd ever said, let there be light, before we'd ever eaten the fruit, before the serpent was even created. God had seen, God had known by His powerful and sovereign foreknowledge that all, men would, that all men would rebel against Him. And yet He chose to save some, writing their names into the book of life and giving that book to His Son that His Son might die so that the accounts of all of those sinners might be declared paid in full. But we can't access, can we, eternity past? And none of us has ever read our name in the book of life. But we don't need to either. Because the promise of God is salvation in a Son. And we are elected and chosen in Jesus Christ. So that everything we ever need to know about who is saved is found in Him. That whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but inherit eternal life. For many, 
This is not the God they imagine or envision. For in the hearts of so many, both in the church and outside of it, God is just cruel, ready to punish, unrelenting in His demand that we live perfect lives. Even we, who hear the good news of the gospel with great regularity, who experience endless blessings from the hand of our Heavenly Father, even we can imagine, and too often do, that God is not as kind as the Bible says He is. And then sometimes we see the doctrine of election as proof of this. Election, when studied across the breadth of Scripture, teaches that our God, before anything was begun or any human being was ever created, from the billions upon billions of human beings that would flow from the loins of Adam, chose some to be saved by the greatness of His Son's saving work. Or in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to His eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving Him thereunto and all to the praise of His glorious grace. It's for nothing we have done but only for His own name's sake. And for many, that's the problem. There are some, a secret number, a preferred group of people whom God favors. And then there's this other group, this vast majority of people whom God doesn't like. And there's nothing you can do about it. Which doesn't seem gracious at all but cruel. And yet everything we know about our God testifies to His glorious grace and goodness. For the doctrine of election does not leave us patting ourselves on the back. Look at us. We're the preferred ones. But it does proclaim that the greatness of our God, whose grace and goodness is so overwhelming and so costly, so remarkably rich and secure, brings praise to His name. The doctrine of election roots our salvation not in something we do, not in some decision we make, fickle creatures that we are, but it says your hope, your life, your future, your eternity is secure in the unchanging God who redeems. He who knows us better than we do. Who knows what we truly deserve better than we do. But has chosen to give us what we least expected. For He has given us mercy. And our hearts ought to be overwhelmed then. Not with a sense of how unfair this is, For if it is unfair in any way, it is unfair that we should be saved. But rather, how amazing this is. How wonderful and remarkable it is to know that the God we worship is a God of such tenderness and grace, of such mercy and love. 
for whatever else we may think about our God, this remains true. He's beyond our ability to truly comprehend. And His mercy, kindness, love, forgiveness, graciousness, and goodness flows freely upon those whom He loves. So that the doctrine of election does not expose a cruel God at all, but one who has done the remarkably unexpected, for in Christ He has loved the unlovable. And yet someone will still say, why wouldn't He then save everyone? Indeed, why doesn't everyone believe? Sometimes we wonder about that ourselves, given the message of salvation. Hopefully we wonder about that ourselves. Because the gospel we proclaim is distinct, it's unique, it's different than anything else you'll find in this dying world. For every other religion in this world will, will, will tell you, will, will call to you to action. They will say, do this, and maybe you'll get saved. But we proclaim a message of, he's done it, so rest in his work, and you'll absolutely with great certainty be saved. Now, given those two options, a message of do it and maybe you'll get saved, or he's done it, you are saved, why would anyone choose the first? Why would anyone believe that maybe if they can climb Mount Everest, then maybe God would let them into his presence? Why would anyone want anything except the grace and goodness of the God who has redeemed us? And I suppose there's a lot of answers to that question. There are a lot of people, of course, in this world that have never heard the gospel or have heard it wrong or heard it right but chose not to understand it. There's a lot of reasons for why people reject the good news of the gospel, the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. But the truth is, the ultimate reason for why people aren't saved, why everyone in our world isn't saved, is because they don't want to be. Because they choose not to be. That may sound too harsh, yet consider. Consider the greatest preacher that's ever walked on the face of the earth, the one who proclaimed the gospel more clearly than anyone ever before him or after him, who was the perfect presenter of grace that saves. Who would you say is that preacher? Is it Calvin? Is it Augustine? Is it the Apostle Paul? The answer is none of these, of course. The answer is Jesus. In so many ways, in his miracles, words, humility, and tenderness, he made clear to everyone around him in his day that his God was a God of mercy and of love, that he was gentle and lowly in heart. And then what did those people who, whom Jesus came and said, God has sent his Son to save you, to lift you from the pit of your sin, not for anything that you've done, but for his praise and honor, what did the people who heard this glorious good news of the gospel do? They crucified Jesus. They hated him so much, they tried to erase him from their lives. They wanted him out of their ears, out of their eyes, out of their community. And why? Why was Jesus so offensive to them? Was it because Jesus was a threat to them? Was it because he was going to hurt them or punish them or make them suffer? Not at all. 
It was because he required that they surrender their lives to him. He said to them, you must accept me as your Savior. And they said, we won't. That's the last thing we'll do. We'll say a lot of nice things about you, Jesus. We'll accept you in a lot of wonderful ways. But what we will not do is surrender our lives to you. I mean, then they would have to stop living according to the ways of their hearts and start living according to the way of His Word. And they were thinking, absolutely not. I'm not going to give up my wealth. I'm not going to give up my prestige. I'm not going to give up my desires and my sinful living in order to walk in the way of this this carpenter's son. If the ignorant, the weak, the weary and the wounded wanted to follow Jesus, if a bunch of women and a bunch of slaves and sickly folk thought that He was their guy, then good for them. But as for me and my house, we will not serve the Lord. And why? What prevented them from from surrendering their lives to Jesus? Was it Jesus? Not at all. He was great and greatly to be praised. It wasn't His message. It was a message of hope and promise. So why did they reject Him? It was just themselves. They rejected God's way, God's truth, and God's life. They refused to believe. No one made them do that. God certainly did not force them to reject the life-giving power of His Son. But reject Him, they did. Choosing to stay in their sin. Choosing to stay in rebellion against God. And there is only one consequence for such rebellion. Now without question, even that simple thought, let alone that reality, that that some people suffer the eternal wrath of God for the rejection of Him and His Son, ought to be something that weighs upon all of our hearts, bothers us a great deal, and grieves us deeply. That anyone suffers in the eternal fires of hell ought to be for us a cause for sorrow. But God condemns those who reject Him, however, remains the clear teaching of Scripture. That doesn't make it any more pleasant or appealing. But where should we place the fault for this horrible truth? It is tempting for us to lay the blame at the feet of our God and say, He should have made it so that this never happened. Or to suggest that God should not be so harsh that if He were truly a loving God, there would be no place like hell. It's tempting to impose our sensibilities, our rebellious and wicked sensibilities upon God. And we can do that for the rest of our lives. But complaining about it will not change it. Because our God is a God of justice. That's who He is. A God of mercy? Absolutely. A God of love? Undoubtedly. But a God of justice too. He is a God who is true to Himself, to His character and His righteousness. And that means you understand that to accept rebels, to accept sinners into His presence, would require that God deny Himself. That God change who He is. And isn't that the profound arrogance of man exposed? 
For we would say, God, you ought to change to accept us sinners instead of saying we sinners should change to live in righteousness with this God. Our sinful selves have a rather consistent tendency to imagine that everyone else should accommodate themselves to us. But our God is the great I Am, the unchanging One and the faithful One, which ought to give to us who believe in Him great comfort, for we know that in this knowledge our God is true to His Word, faithful to His promise, and even true to Himself, that our salvation is guaranteed because God never changes. And the fact that some people choose to hurl themselves against the rocks of God's justice ought to be a grief to us, but should not soften the truth of who God is, just so that we might diminish the struggle we have with this truth. The Bible makes clear God chooses to save some And he passes over others, leaving them in their chosen sin. We don't know, of course, the full number of that company of those whom God has saved. We only know that those whom God has saved see the truth of who Jesus is and put their trust in him. And in this, we not only rejoice for our own sake, but even for the sake of the church's mission. For we may not know who all is chosen by God. But for that reason, we can also go into the world sharing the truth of who Jesus is and be certain that His chosen ones will forever respond in faith. As we look around at the world around us and see our fellow men living in their rebellion against God, we might think to ourselves, well, there's nothing that's going to make them change their mind. There's nothing we can do or say that's going to win them. Even indeed, what's the point? But it is precisely the opposite that ought to motivate us. That it is because we don't know whom God has chosen amongst this mass of humanity, but who will come to salvation as surely as God has chosen them in in eternity past. That therefore we go out and give to them the good news. Like that sower in Matthew 13, we spread the gospel in the most strange places. Casting it upon the rocks, casting it upon the path, casting it upon anything and everything, sowing it everywhere, because we know that it will find good soil and produce 30, 60, even 100 fold. You see, the doctrine of election motivates us to glorify God and to bring comfort to those who are living by faith. It motivates us to extol the majesty of our God and to proclaim the comfort of life in Him. We know that our world does not accept Him. We know that in our world there are many who refuse to believe in Him. But we also know that many in our world are chosen for eternal life. And it is to them that we must speak this word of hope and give this comforting truth that God's salvation in Jesus Christ is yes and amen. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the good news of your electing love, that our place here, our faith, it's not something that we have done, but it is something that you have done. And you have chosen us in eternity past and so brought us to see Jesus Christ and to love and worship him. Indeed, what a comfort to know, Lord, as we live our lives by faith, that it is only because you've chosen us and that our eternity is secure in you. May that also motivate us, Lord, to speak to those, whether in our own congregation or in our community, who are rebelling against you, and to say to them that there is life in Jesus' name, to scatter that seed everywhere and anywhere, so that in time it would produce its bounty to the praise of your most holy name. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.